Smartcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hold on to your butts. We are changing the course of history as we see it. That is what Wesker demands. Now this affects Iris. Um, Iris, where are you? What you feel only matters to you. I do not entertain hypotheticals. The world as it is is vexing enough. Iris, I have a tip for you. Don't take drugs! Or whatever movies with Wesley and Iris. What up? Welcome to Or Whatever Movies. I'm your co-host, Iris, and I'm here with my older brother. Wesley. Why do you say it like that? <laughs> like what? I don't know. Like a zombie. Or in the case of this movie, a ghoul. As, yes, a flesh-eating, murderous ghoul. Like every zombie movie has its own zombie lore, and then they have their own name for zombies. Well, they never say zombie in this movie. What movie are we talking about? Today we're talking about a movie from 1968, probably the oldest movie that we've reviewed. We don't really do classics. Night of the Living Dead. Available. Available everywhere. IMDb TV with ads. You only have to watch it with ads, man. You know that there's a link to the full movie in the Wikipedia page for this movie? <laughs> no, I did not. That's handy. Yep. Where did you watch? YouTube. Rewatch. Wow. It's one of the biggest examples of public domain movies. Not only is Night of the Living Dead currently public domain because all creative works end up in the public domain eventually, but there was actually rights controversy early on in the history of the Night of the Living Dead. Yep. Would you like to detail that for our listeners? Well, so very briefly, it was called Night of Anubis, but nobody knew what Anubis meant, so George Romero changed it to Night of the Flesh Eaters. But there was already a movie called The Flesh Eaters from a few years before. So at the last minute, they changed it to Night of the Living Dead. But in doing so, they failed to provide the little copyright thing, the little C in the circle, on the title page on the on screen. And because of the legal loophole at the time, it fell into public domain and people can rework it, release it in whatever media format they feel and, and can produce numerous knockoffs without any uh, financial responsibility to the original filmmakers. And how much did George Romero and co. lose out on? Well, potentially many tens of millions of dollars, maybe more. They made very little money. But also, I wonder if the total proliferation of this movie as a result of its availability, unrestricted availability, kind of helps it in a way. So many people saw it because they could, because it was so widely available. Also, there's this weird series of fortuitous, I guess, accidents 
this film may have been one of the last to escape any rating at all. The MPAA really came and came to form after this movie. And so it was released to all ages. Stephen King reports being in a theater full of kids for this movie. Whoa. I certainly remember seeing Night of the Living Dead as a kid, but I didn't. I don't think that has anything to do with the fact that this movie wasn't rated. I think that has to do with the fact that there were, there were no ratings restrictions in our home growing <laughs> up, but it also came out in a time where there wasn't the proliferation of the internet. So even though this was in the public domain, you still needed some exhibition format in order to watch it. Yeah, but every and any network could play it at their leisure. Obviously, it's seminal, especially for horror. It defined the zombie genre, even though George Romero refused to call them zombies, and stands as a a testament to making sure that you know what you're doing so you don't get taken advantage of in terms of distribution and... Like a cautionary tale? Royalties, yeah. Obviously, it's important because it was so unique. But as with most classic movies, and I guess horror movies, most of my joy came from rewatching this movie and finding out the crazy stuff that I learned about this movie after the fact. Like what? Well, uh, aside from like doing research, I clearly remember this is one of Dad's acid trip movies (laughs) where he's wandering around on acid. And then he and his buddy are like, let's go to the theater and see a movie. And they stumbled into Night of the Living Dead and they were like, oh, man, and like all blown away and freaked out by what is undoubtedly something that nobody expected. It was pretty genre shattering and really scary. Amazingly unsettling. This is George Romero and his buddies making a movie and they were shooting it guerrilla style. And when the money ran out. They would take what they had and edit it together and use that reel to show other potential investors and butchers and stuff who were like, yeah, I got $300 and some guts if you want to shoot some stuff with guts. (laughs) Is that a true story? Yeah. A low-level investor was a butcher who was like, here's some entrails. You should juggle them around and pretend to eat them. Ew. (laughs) Yeah. The gas pump, the resulting barbecue from the gas pump scene, that was ham covered in chocolate syrup. From said butcher? I don't know if it was from said butcher, but the joke was that they didn't, they barely needed to do makeup because everyone was green from having to eat ham covered in chocolate syrup. So bear with me here. Hardman Eastman, who was a production company that George Romero partnered with, was headed up by Carl Hardman, who was the producer, and Marilyn Eastman, who respectively played Harry and Helen. Oh. And Harry, Carl Hardman, who's younger than both of us are now, by the way, who was at the what? time. What? Yes, see? The balding Stucky dude? The Fred Mertz, high pants, like, you're crazy. The cellar's the safest place. Like, that dude's younger than we are. <laughs> and his daughter is Kyra Schoen, who played the little girl. Wait, Karen? Yes. Carl Hardman's real-life daughter is Kyra Schoen? Yep, he's her dad. Although Marilyn Eastman, who played Helen, her mom, isn't her mom. They were actually romantic partners as well as professional partners, probably before and after this movie. Wow. That's a real art imitating life trip. Right. And Carl Hardman was also a producer. Marilyn Eastman, who played Helen Cooper, also did the makeup. And she was the zombie who plucks the bug off the tree and eats it. (laughs) No. And she did her own makeup for that scene. She's like, I want to be a zombie. I'm going to be a bug-eating zombie. And then she made herself up. 
So she, and I, I certainly didn't make the connection. And so either she was really transformed into her zombie character or it was just so out of context that I would have never put two and two together. Exactly. And that failure to put these things together is what brought me so much joy. Like, really? Like, you see all the real life connections between the people who stand as these characters definitively in my mind. How could Marilyn Eastman, who played Helen, possibly be a zombie? Because it's a little run and gun on the ground filmmaking kind of thing. <laughs> it brings a whole new meaning to multi-hyphenate. You're like, I'm the producer actor zombie. Right. And uh, not to bring it down, but Marilyn Eastman just died, just passed away two days ago. Two days yep, ago. She passed away oh. as I was watching this movie. I mean, but she made it to 87. So good for her. Yeah. So she just passed away. Uh, no word on whether or not she came back. Wow. Really? Yep. I can keep going. <laughs> Ready? Attempt to lighten the mood. Yes. Go. Russell Striner, who played Johnny, was also a producer on the movie. And later, after the movie, married Judy, married Judith Ridley, although they got divorced. What? Yep. So Johnny married Judy after the movie, and Judy at the time was receptionist at Hardman Eastman. And then she was the lead in George Romero's subsequent movie, At the Beach with Bananas or something. Or <laughs> there's, there's Always Vanilla, something like that. At the Beach with Bananas. <laughs> Whatever. Was that like a just a blonde thing or? Uh, yeah, there's always vanilla. I, I, I didn't see it. All right. What else you got? Also, Kyra Schoen, who played the little girl who played, what's her name? <laughs> Karen. Karen was also the corpse upstairs. I just noticed that. she Yeah, cause, because Kyra Schoen in IMDb is credited as Karen Cooper slash corpse in the house. Yep. And that corpse was meant to demonstrate what? That the zombies had already been here and eaten the former residents? I'm not occupants? sure. Like, this movie comes together so well, it feels like everything should be in place. But why was there a masticated corpse with prominent ping pong ball eyeballs upstairs in that <laughs> house already? I don't know. I mean, by the time we get to the house, it's been, the outbreak has been going on for what, two days? Uh,. I'm not sure because it, by two days, you would think that everybody who was going to get up got up and uh, you just started to see it. It seemed like that night was the uh, the real genesis of it. But you're talking about the broadcast that Johnny and Barbara hear on the way to, when they get to the cemetery, right? When the radio kicks back in. Yeah, which, by the way, is the voice of Carl Hardman, Mr. Cooper. I don't get it. Is is, is the word, in, it's not incestuous. What's the word? You know, I actually thought that same word. It's just... A lot of mingling. It's just people coming together to like contribute whatever they could to make right? this happen. I feel like anybody in the 60s and 70s could do that news reporter affected voice where it's like, you know, straight from Philadelphia, we have a news report. And uh, George Romero plays one of the broadcasters. The news broadcasts on the radio and on the TV serve to give this movie a sense of scope. The phones ringing and the and the typewriters clacking and stuff in the background, it serves to make it feel bigger than it is. Not only like that there's that there's an outside world, but that the story is bigger than it is. It's, yeah, it's a great observation. I feel like otherwise it is a very small 
farmhouse drama, but we get news <laughs> reports from all over the world. It makes it feel like a much bigger picture, and, and you get a real sense because they're tied to the TV and to the radio. I was actually surprised revisiting this movie by how carefully that world was constructed from not just a team in the house who were like, you know, the power's out, communication is cut off, but you have the roving teams of vigilantes or whatever, the, the cleanup team and the sheriff and all that stuff. Yeah, it felt much bigger. I was also surprised by how contemporary this movie is. Growing up and watching it in the 80s, I felt like this thing was made like in the 40s or the 50s. And yeah. then I realized like 1968 feels old to me when I'm a kid born in the 80s watching this in the late 80s, early 90s. But it's a pretty contemporary movie. And I was reminded of that because I also watched this in, in a color version. Uh -huh. Did you? Yes, I did on YouTube because it was a curiosity. I had never seen it in color. I had never seen it in color either, and I was like, this makes it feel so much more contemporary, whereas when I was watching it in the late 80s, in black and white, it felt like a completely different era. And honestly, it comes down to the black and white, which this movie didn't have to be in black and white. Their movies were long in color by the time this one came around. And that's interesting. Yeah, maybe that's what I didn't register. It's just like, if it could have been made in color, it would have been, and because it wasn't, it's like it predates... Wizard of Oz or something. And I think it was just because it was cheaper. I don't know that this was a stylistic choice, although it did give them some license to use stuff like chocolate syrup instead of the, the hyper color red blood, you know? A lot of happy accidents happened to make this a classic. A lot of things fell in place and it was offset by the one biggest, largest bungle in film history, arguably, in that it fell into public domain and nobody made money off of it. And we we enjoyed the fruits of those labors, even if they didn't <laughs> themselves, financially. But you know what does not feel contemporary? And I'm guessing you're gonna you saw this one coming. What's that? Obviously the portrayal of women. We will, yeah. Wow. Barbara was supposed to be the strong, fierce, independent woman who fights for her survival. And that changed a little bit, maybe because the character that Dwayne Jones plays, Ben, is so assertive and so kind of taking charge that she assumed a different role. But I mean, th this is something that obviously you pay attention to. But other than Barbara being shell-shocked, is it uh, Helen under Harry's thumb or is it Judy or what? All of the above. I mean, you know, I'll just preface this by saying I don't condone domestic abuse or the violence toward any person. But boy, was I glad to see Barbara get hit at 30 minutes in. I mean, does it really, it doesn't really snap her out of her reverie. Well, at least to shut her up for a little bit. <laughs> My God. And that's all I wanted to do for 20 minutes is like snap her out of her trance and get her to do something. Like Ben, in contrast, is a man of action. He's got a plan. He's acting on her behalf. And she's a lump. And she's <laughs> not only that, but she's she's defiant. And I was like, oh, my God, she is so helpless. I mean, Tom says it all. And he's like, you really are worthless, aren't you? And she's like, yes. And then, yeah, Ben sending Helen downstairs and having Helen send Judy up because I don't know what Judy is young and can be helpful. And Helen's old and, and her responsibility is to her daughter. And like, yeah, Harry ordering her around and silencing her and stuff. Like all of it was just, have we come that far and yet not and yet not that far? Well, she's the original survivor. It seems like she is set up. Barbara is set up to be the main character, right? Until Ben arrives. And then what about the main character, a white woman, being smacked by the black dude? 
who becomes the assertive lead in Pennsylvania in the late 60s. Kind of unheard of, right? Yeah, absolutely. So was that, was the the character composition just as shocking as all the genre-bending aspects of Night of the Living Dead? It was shocking and surprising and unconventional, something I think that Romero and co. really played into. But he maintains, had always maintained, that it was just a coincidence. He wrote the character as white, and then this guy... Dwayne Jones shows up and he's the best actor for the role. And he's also a friend of theirs. And so Ben never changed. All the stuff that happens to him was going to happen to the character when he just happened to be Caucasian in their mind. But when he came on board and he was not the surly truck driver, industrious truck driver type he was originally envisioned to be, but much more erudite and forceful. Then it takes on all these racial connotations, and they just seem to fall in step with history. Dwayne Jones, as Ben, remains to this day one of the strongest black central figures in horror, if not in movies at large. That's awfully progressive and colorblind of the filmmaking team. Or maybe the best kind, because everything that the character of Ben stood to represent in the history of black cinema was unintentional and just fortuitous, just a happenstance, and that's, I guess, the best way, right, where it's not made a big deal of. It's just a human story and not necessarily a a race-related story, but it's a little counterintuitive in terms of the casting process. Typically, you cast your lead and then you build a cast around him or her. And it seems like there's some of that happening here, even if it was happenstance that Dwayne Jones was best for the Ben role. Because Carl Hardman, though now I know his association, his broader association with the film, seems like a great counterpoint to Ben. He's a coward. He's selfish. He's got that mousy, hunched, kind of anxious delivery. (laughs) Yeah, the kind of neurotic thing going, whereas Ben is so self-possessed. And I mean, I guess the virtues and stuff are certainly not race contingent, but physically they seem like opposites. And this is what I mean. This guy, Carl Hardman, was a producer and an actor, and I can't see him as anything but the, like, yelly, hunched-over, annoying Mr. Cooper. And you think yeah. he's like, the cellar is the safest place. You're, you're crazy. You're out of your mind. Cut. And, and he's like, we're doing great, guys. I think this film is amazing. Let's do it again. You know? He's, like, producing. While he's undoubtedly the actiest in my mind, he still fits as a character. And maybe because, as you put it, he's a counterpoint to Ben. It'd be hard to decide who gets the Razzie for this movie because, and I don't know if it's just a late 60s affectation, but like these women are pretty acty. You know, the dramatic clawing at faces. And I think we're kind of aware that these are very dated performances and women's roles have progressed somewhat. So does this feel like a dude movie? I know that sounds strange to say because there are arguably as many prominent female characters as male. Well, actually, that's not true. But, you know, there's a fair amount of female representation, but there's no, as far as I saw, male nudity in the zombies. Yeah, we see that recurrent stunt butt (laughs) in a couple of different zombie shots. Zomba. Zomba. (laughs) I mean, the, the cast is evenly weighted. But women and children are baggage and they're worthless. They, they're troublesome in here, whereas men are the active heroes. Um, you know, uh, Tom dies a heroic, albeit, you know, kind of unfortunate death. Ben, too, is a survivor. 
Maybe they'd assume Alpha rolls, but none of the men come out looking spectacularly heroic. Tom really botches that gas delivery. I think yeah. that Ben really should have known better, and Ben's end, so frustrating and so horrifying, I guess, in that way. Ugh. Mr. Cooper dies, you know, a coward's death, or and even then, Ben shoots him, his really only ally, and, and I'm thankful that this movie pretty much stayed on target we knew who the enemy was and mm -hmm. his death was infighting but i'm really tired i think i told you about the real zombies and the real horror is in the hearts of men themselves and and how they turn when we really i wanted the focus to be on the zombies well the zombies aren't much more than the menace they're as faceless as roving wandering people can be obviously they're not characters because they're they're lifeless you know they're they're dead what I'm trying to say is, what is there really to focus on with the zombies? Well, it is the horror that they're not really people. They're as much grabbing hands and lumbering crowds. Uh, that did change. Later on, Romero got some more heroic zombies. In, at this point, the zombies are entering. They've entered the Stone Age. They know how to use tools. The first zombie picks up a rock and breaks the window with it. The other one grabs the chair leg. You know, but otherwise, they're still pretty basic. But later on, some of the George Romero stuff, they're using guns and stuff. All right, so because this is a male-driven movie and the women are shrinking violets, I'm going to dominate this conversation now, and I'm going to give you a quiz. Not a quiz. Okay, just, go. Just pepper you with a couple of questions. Scariest moment for you, Night of the Living Dead? Um, It's a toss-up because when Johnny says, Barbara... <laughs> I had this weird transportive chill run down my spine, like deep seated fear had been summoned from my childhood when you used to strap me to chairs and make me watch scary movies. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I, I, I used that line on you at some point. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, pretty scary. And then I had the moment later on where, you know, you do one of those things where you like lean back and your eyes go kind of buggy and you're like, ooh. <laughs> I didn't remember Tom's death. And when the thing blew up, I was like, oh, man. Does that count? Yeah, no, absolutely. For me, definitely Mrs. Cooper getting stabbed and the trowel noises, stick like sticking it into a sack of meat or something. That weighs on me. And then I got to say, man, at the end, the photographs post Ben's oh. killing, those meat hooks, man, those things will stick yeah. in my memory forever. It's so horrifying. Yeah, those things. I was wondering what those were called. Uh, those are called meat hooks. To see him so industrious, so focused and centered and uh, not unflappable because he shoots a dude in the gut. To have him be so unceremoniously killed and to see him just a piece of meat is really like that bothers me to this day. Yeah, it's weird how chilling those photos are. He's completely dehumanized. There's this really chilling music underneath. Oh, that the credits score. are just yeah and then it ends in the bonfire the pyre Ooh. and uh also those uh, photos taken by uh the guy who who uh, played harry of course yeah okay carl hardman the yeah. everyman the the multi-hat wearing carl hardman how do you feel about guerrilla style filmmaking where they chose the cemetery in Philadelphia because it had 360 degree views. They could see if anybody was coming. They could run out and shoot. <laughs> they could, uh, you know, use all their friends and kind of hole up in this farmhouse and stuff and just do it on the cheap. Uh, mostly improvised dialogue from a basic script. 
And then when they would get enough money, they'd go back and shoot some more. It just, it seemed like an unsmooth process and was mm -hmm. held together by sheer will and dedication. Yeah. I mean, from a producer's standpoint, I certainly don't recommend it. It's very stressful to shoot guerrilla style, but you get some really happy surprises from sets that aren't locked down and from the spontaneous nature of that kind of filming. And, and oftentimes the passion results in some pretty inspired filmmaking. So all props to them. You know what's always wigged me out is when people, like, you know, they'll get that reunited the part where they'll read scenes from classic movies that they're known for, and they don't read it anything like the character. And we, as longtime fans who, who have heard these, in, I've heard these lines in my head for decades, right? He ripped at me. He pulled at my clothes. He ripped at my clothes. And I can hear it, right? And that was a totally improvised speech where she wanted to get out her experience with her brother in the cemetery. And uh, Judith O'Day, <laughs> like, just delivered that speech one time. They got one take and they were worried the audio would be crap, but it was serviceable. They were able mm. to use it. I bet you she doesn't even remember it where it's so burned into our heads. It's just like a one take, you know, running gun style of filmmaking that just boggles my mind. That it holds together. And, and was it just in the edit that Ben's total dismissal of her little diatribe? Like, because Ben's awfully annoyed by her. Like, calm down. Yeah. All right, relax. He's protective of her against Harry, but he also doesn't have time because she's not contributing at all. No, he doesn't need her baggage, too. But it's interesting that her rant was improvised because... When she's in the middle of it, I'm like, this is such inefficient storytelling. We <laughs> saw all of that happen. Right. We don't need the recap. And even then, like, runtime's pretty lean, even with that unnecessary recap, which is probably her most emotive, the most emotive part of her performance. It still comes in at like an hour 36, something like that. Yeah, I think they keep it pretty focused, whether that was just a result of, of economical filmmaking or succinct storytelling. Okay. So in terms of monsters, does this monster deserve to, does it rank up there with Frankenstein, with Dracula, the Invisible Man? This is from whole cloth, nothing, no association really. George Romero himself said that zombies to him were always, you know, down in the Caribbean, those guys who were poisoned or given a powder and, and they lost their minds and did the bidding of their masters. They, it was going to be an alien movie at one point, and there's vague connotations uh, that it might be aliens still. This uh, probe from Venus that had a mutation aboard. And, right. Uh, but they didn't really delve too deeply into that. He didn't call them zombies until he relented because of fan pressure years later. To him, they were always ghouls or those things. And they sat down and said, okay, if these things are coming back to life, what's the worst thing they could do to humans? And they decided on cannibalism. And thus right. the modern incarnation of zombie was born. Do you feel that this is really the genesis of a substantive creature? Well, you're the authority here. Although I guess I have I have some room to talk. I recently read The Serpent and the Rainbow, which is all about the Caribbean zombies by Wade Davis. Yeah, we have that movie. Wes Craven did that movie. Oh, yeah? yeah. I haven't seen it. It's at Mom and Dad's house. And The Zombie Survival Guide, which I found to be hilarious. And then World War Z, which was a whole different animal. Right. A whole different zombie. Um, but yeah, I think that the zombie in general definitely has its place in the pantheon of all-time scary monsters 
does this movie itself cement the zombie in the pantheon? I'm not sure, but there's so many different kinds. There's the slow zombies and the fast zombies. There's the intelligent zombies and the vacuous zombies. There's the the radiation zombies. And then there's the, you know, how you get infected. All these things like determine what kind of zombie you're, we're dealing with. Is there a zombie movie before this that put zombies as we know them today? on the map there were zombie movies but it was always the caribbean kind of thing but this Mm -hmm. idea of eating flesh and then subsequently eating brains which was the non-george romero affiliated uh, spin-offs that kind of came to be what zombies are today so obviously they were there were vampire tales werewolf tales that kind of thing but it wasn't until a definitive piece of work came into play that it shaped it in the minds of the populace. It's funny you mentioned that. I was really waiting for brains. Yep, that's, that's not in this movie at all. Nope. Return of the Living Dead Nothing ha- has nothing to do with Romero. And you'll note that his sequels, his Day of Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead, don't have living dead in them because he wants to disassociate himself from what everybody else took over. Dude, did we have Return of the Living Dead on VHS and not Night of the Living Dead? We had that too, but it's there and you'll remember parts of it. It's a wholly different movie. And and last question, ready? Go. So as this movie goes, this one was as shocking and unsettling and maybe changed movies forever. Only a month after this, this may have uh, kicked it back into gear. The MPAA started labeling movies because there were theaters full of kids. This was in its own way, like The Exorcist, where people just freaked out and didn't know what to do. Reader's Digest said that they were afraid that this was going to start a rash of cannibalism among young people. (laughs) What? Uh, Roger Ebert had some choice words to say about Night of the Living Dead, but this one messed people up and it was available for everyone to see. You're a mom, so what is what is a movie like this <laughs> being available to your kids? Because, I mean, I'll be frank, I love this movie, and I know it really well. I can hear it in my head. I can remember all the stuff, and it makes me happy about terrible subject matter. It's not really morality, because they're mindless zombies and stuff. But still, these kinds of movies have an effect on people, and at the time, it had an effect on kids. And I was one of those kids who, being very young, without heed, just like charged into this movie and watched it ravenously, if you'll forgive the pun. What do you think? about movies like this that just go for broke, really push the envelope with violence or gore or the things that really trigger certain people, particularly people with young kids like you. Well, this movie achieves what it set out to achieve. I always like to say this film delivered on the promise of its premise. And on that merit alone, it's a success. I read one review that called Romero's Night of the Living Dead sublime. And I think in terms of filmmaking and storytelling in the horror genre, that's pretty right on. I might have developed a taste for this in my older age that I can really appreciate it and not be scared to death by it like I was as a little kid. Do I want Paloma to see it? Mm. (laughs) Probably not, but mostly because I don't want to deal with the fallout from that trauma. Maybe in a couple years. What she needs is an older brother. (laughs) seriously you know what because of all of the trauma i received growing up with you i'm like that older brother but i kind of know paloma she's not really one to push in this direction she just takes everything in like she takes it all in straight to the heart i'm like i just don't want to do that to her (sighs) all right let's close it with a zombie joke go what do vegetarian zombies eat grains great you have to say it right
<laughs> Grains. Okay, that's all I got. Oh, come on. That's it? Well, for zombie jokes. Ask Alexa. Echo, tell me a zombie joke. Did you hear about the curious zombie? Hear about the curious zombie? He'd like to pick your brain. Yep. <laughs> it's See, the brain, the, the brain and the, exactly. Night of the Living Dead, available wherever you can get anything video related. Apparently, I watched it on IMDb. We hope you enjoyed our review on Night of the Living Dead. Thank you for listening. Thank you for subscribing to our podcast wherever you get podcasts. Happy Halloween, and we'll see you next time. They are coming to get you, Paloma. <laughs> Creepy. Are you passionate about saving the planet for future generations? Do you want to learn how to do it? If yes, then you need to tune in to the Nature Back podcast. It's a talk show covering the changing world around us. From renewable energy, sustainable agriculture, circular economy, to ESG and social innovation. Don't miss this opportunity to discover how you can join the movement and make a difference. Subscribe to the Nature Back podcast today on your favorite platform and get ready to be amazed. Today is working for me. Do you believe that for yourself? Hey, I'm Pastor Julie, and I want to empower you through encouragement. Inviting you to my podcast, Big Truth Encouragement, where I unpack living a faith-filled life. I created my podcast for the ladies, but gentlemen, you'll gain something too. So I invite you to listen to Big Truth Encouragement on Electricast and any platform where you listen to your podcast. Electricast. Electricast.